It is such a great blessing for us to be together. I want to join with the others in welcoming those who are with us online, welcoming those who are present with us today. What a great blessing to see so many faces out. The weather's getting cold outside, but it's comfortable in here, and it sure is cozy being together with people who love the Lord and who love each other and want to serve God together. As we're looking at today in our lesson, there is some sobering news to be thinking about and further establishes the blessing of our being together. The truth is, you are at war. That's not something comfortable really to think about, something we don't like to really contemplate that much, but it is true. Whether or not you recognize that you're at war, whether or not you're doing something about it, you are at war. The enemy has declared war on you. He has engaged you in a battle that you're destined to lose if you don't recognize that you're at war. Perhaps David didn't want to fight the Philistines, but he knew Israel was out fighting the Philistines. He knew his brothers were out fighting the Philistines, and he was taking food to them on the occasion that we read about in 1 Samuel 17 when he ends up beating Goliath. David recognized that that battle was costing lives, that God was being blasphemed every day that the Philistines were gaining ground against the Israelites, and every day that that giant came out taunting the Israelite armies. David recognized there was a battle. He knew something else. He knew something that Israel seemed to have forgotten. He knew something that certainly the Philistines didn't recognize. That battle belonged to the Lord. And as that Philistine was taunting David, David told him so much. I can come at you with just these stones. Because God is not going to win this battle by sword and spear. The battle is his, and he's going to give you into our hands. What would your life be like if you recognized that you were in a war zone? There are people who live like this every day. Back in the early 90s when I was in college, the Gulf War was on. It was one of the first televised wars, is what they called it. You could actually watch live action of them bombing at night. You could see what was going on during the day. And I remember seeing this scene that really shocked me. There was this war, this battle going on on this street, much like this street we're seeing here. I don't know if you noticed this dog sitting there. There was a dog in the foreground of the, of the camera, and as shells were going off in the street, the dog just sat there. I thought, that's odd. It obviously wasn't some trained soldier dog. This was a mutt that was just in the street that had become so desensitized by all the fighting that it wasn't even flinching or reacting when these bombs were going off, not far down the street from where this dog was. I'd like to think if we recognized we were in a war zone, that we would live differently than so often we do. But I wonder if, I'm speaking to a group of Christians here, we're so accustomed to thinking about the fact that we're in a war zone that maybe we've just become desensitized. And we don't think about the battles that are raging all around us all the time in the lives of our fellow brethren and in our own lives. And I wonder if we're not losing ground to the enemy because we just don't think about the battle. I want you to look hard at that picture. That's a physical reality of war. But the spiritual reality of war is not much different. The enemy is engaging us on every front all the time relentlessly. 
It'll help us to remember what David remembered, that the battle belongs to the Lord. I've been promising for a while to teach a lesson on the armor of God, but I wanted to set that lesson up first by talking about this battle that we're engaged in, this battle that belongs to the Lord and what that means. And some of the things that David mentioned here and things we see in other places, and especially in the Old Testament, about this concept. David said, when you get down to verse uh, 47, that it is the Lord's battle, and he will give you into our hands. There's an idea that comes from these texts that is that, the God, that God is the Lord of hosts. In fact, in verse 45, that's what David said. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. That phrase, Lord of hosts, in the New Testament is, is the word sabaoth. It's a Greek rendering of a uh, Hebrew word, sabbath, not sabbath. But it's a word that means those who go out, armies, in the end. It's used more than 250 times in the Old Testament, depending on whether you're looking for the phrase Lord Sabaoth or you're looking for other uses of it, it could be more than 300 times. There's people that have done a lot, lot more research work on this than I have, but at least 250 times we see this very phrase, the Lord of hosts. That's an awful lot of times to see that descriptor of God. And we know several others. But this is the one that David used. And it describes God who perhaps we might think of more as sort of commander-in-chief. He's sovereign over the heavenly host, first of all. He's the one who commands the armies, the spiritual armies that go out. In Genesis 2.1, we see that God made the heavens and the earth and the host of them. Right from the get-go, God is the commander of his creation. And so they're called the host, as though they're, they're armies waiting his commandment. So host usually means armies, but it really describes all who go out. There's a great use of it in Psalm uh, 103. Go with me there to Psalm 103 quickly. Um, just want to get this idea before us that it doesn't just mean armies, although in our context certainly today we're going to look at it as someone who commands soldiers. But Psalm 103 verse 21, it's a psalm of blessing God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, it begins. All that is within me, bless his holy name. But as you look then at verse 21, bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers, you servants of his who do his pleasure. All those who come and go in the service of the Lord are his host, whether they're marching out as, in ranks as armies or they're just serving him, doing his pleasure. And so as we go through the Old Testament over and again, we see these concepts of the heavenly host. We see heavenly armies. In Joshua chapter 5, recently we, we talked about this text, when the angel of the Lord is standing there. I want to read through this, uh, these few verses here. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, <laughs> but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servants? So here's an angel that's the commander of this particular army of the Lord that's helping Israel in this battle. Later on, we're going to look a little more closely at uh, Isaiah 37. It's when Hezekiah receives the letter from Sennacherib. And they said, we're going to destroy your people. You might as well surrender. He takes the letter and spreads it out before God. And he calls him Lord of hosts, Lord of armies. And God responds, in that case, sending one angel. He's got an army at his disposition. He sends one angel. that kills 185,000 of the Assyrians that night. 
So we see heavenly armies. We also see heavenly messengers. In Zechariah 1, we're not going to read it, but you see the horsemen that are going about on the earth, and they're messengers for God. They're seeing what's going on in these different places. But in Luke chapter 2, I'll read this one because it'll, it'll tie us into two of these concepts together. Luke chapter 2, we'll start at verse 8. You'll recognize this as the Annunciation. This is when they're announcing to the shepherds that Jesus is born. There were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were greatly afraid. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Look at verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So we see both heavenly messengers and heavenly worshipers that are surrounding the throne of God. In Psalm 148 and verse 2, we see that same idea, the host of the heaven worshiping God. So certainly God is sovereign over the heavenly, over spiritual hosts of, of helpers and armies. But we also see that, obviously, God is sovereign over earthly hosts and earthly armies, as it were. In Isaiah chapter 13, and again in chapter 45, we see that God had planned and then used uh, human armies to bring about his will. He used the Medes and the Persians to judge Babylon. In Isaiah 13, verse 1 says, "...the, the burden against Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones." I have also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation, the noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. It's a proclamation against Babylon. He brought the Medes and the Persians in to destroy them and to take them over because they had gotten too big for their britches. He had used them originally to judge his own people. In Isaiah 45, he calls Cyrus by name to come in and do this work. That's why I mentioned that. But he had used Babylon to judge his own people. You remember that Habakkuk was shocked by that. We'll go to Jeremiah 21. We're going to reference this text again later as well. Habakkuk had asked the Lord, how long are you going to put up with the evil that Israel's doing? And I said, oh, I've got plans. I'm bringing the Babylons, the Chaldeans. Habakkuk was shocked. He did bring the Chaldeans. And here's what Jeremiah told uh, the people that were asking about it in his day, when they saw Nebuchadnezzar coming and wondered why God wasn't doing anything. Jeremiah 21, verses 1 through 10. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Maziah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. And Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans, who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Then look down at verse uh, 10. For I have set my face against this city for adversity and not for good, says the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. God was commanding these troops, these earthly troops, and using them to judge who he would judge. 
But most importantly for us in our study, and we've seen God's sovereignty in all of these cases, he is sovereign over the hosts of his people. It's a fascinating thing to think about, but this idea of the holy soldier, the soldier of God, is a clear concept in both the Old and the New Testament. We'll see it more, uh, more closely in the New Testament in our next study about the armor of God. But we see that God has certainly got the power as creator to judge and to command for victory in favor of or against even his beloved. It's interesting the citation in Romans 9 verse 29. This is where Lord Sabaoth is used or Sabaoth is used in the New Testament. And the citation is from Isaiah 1 9, but I want to read it from Romans 9 29. As Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. God, when he judged his people, used mercy. He left a remnant among them. And Isaiah recognized that ahead of time, that that was going to happen. And Paul is saying in the book of Romans, this is the blessing to you, Gentiles. God has left a remnant among both Jew and Gentile that his word could go out into the the nations. The point is that God is in command over all of these happenings on the earth, but especially in favor of his remnant people. So I want to take a look at that, examine that idea as we go back into the Old Testament now. God, when he brought Israel out of Egypt, he began to number them as armies. It seems like a strange concept. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 3, he says to number them by their armies. So we see this concept of Israel, the nation of Israel at least, as they're coming out from the very beginning, from the time they're formed as a nation, they're a holy army. It really begins, the first time it's mentioned in this way, is in Exodus 6 and verse 26. It's sort of a a conclusion statement here to what Moses and Aaron are going to do. It says in verse 26, These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. According to their armies. It's such a strange thing when you read that the first time. How in the world are the Israelites, these broken slave people in Egypt, how are they coming out as armies? But then you see it over and over again in Exodus. You see it in Numbers over and over. This idea that in Exodus 12, 36, they plundered the Egyptians. They asked them for stuff as they were leaving, but the word used is they plundered the Egyptians. Then we're told again in Exodus 12, verse 41, that the armies of the Lord marched forth out of Egypt toward the the promised land. In uh, Exodus uh, 13, I didn't put this one on here, but in Exodus 13, verse 18, It says, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. All of this description, it looks like these armies marching out. Now, we see this ragtag group group of people that have been saved from the hand of Pharaoh, but God is calling them his army as they're going out. And then when you get in the first few chapters of Numbers, you cannot miss it. They're encamped as armies. They're counted as soldiers together, all who are able to go out to war. And then there's this... Uh, this army was numbered at, and you get all these verses, which each time this group of, of tribes that were meeting together as an army, their number is given. It's just amazing over and over how God is calling his people to be his soldiers. However, this ought to be a little shocking as well. There's no soldier's training manual. They're not shown how to fight. They're not told much about how the fight's going to go at all. There's no training for these soldiers. At first, in fact, in Exodus 13, as they're coming out of Egypt, it's interesting that God leads them away from war. 
It came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, this is Exodus 13, 17, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and they went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. God was sparing them from having to see war right away because they had no training and they hadn't had an opportunity for the training he was going to give them. Now, it wouldn't be typical soldier's training where you're learning how to wield the sword, but I want to suggest to you there is training that's coming, and they needed that before they just ran into the Philistines. And God knew that. God is the one who is controlling where they go so they don't run into war. That also means later that God's going to control where they go so they do run into war when he sends them in. At this first bit, though, as they're headed out, when there was a need for a battle, it was God who fought for them. Look at Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. Here's when Pharaoh and his armies have now caught up to the Israelites. They're, they're closed in by the Red Sea. There's no hope. They see the armies coming. They know there's nowhere they can go. And here's what Moses said. Do not be afraid, Exodus 14, 13. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today... You shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. It's an amazing and frightening thing to think about as they're standing there watching the Pharaoh's army, hot on their trail, upset with them for leaving, about to come and kill them. But they already had some training, didn't they? They had already plundered the Egyptians on their way out, and all they did was nothing but obey the Lord. They didn't lift a sword to plunder the Egyptians. Plunder is a, is a word of war. It's, it's the spoils of war. The plunder goes to the, the one who wins in a battle. So I want to walk you back through some of the text in Exodus 12. I want to see how this war was won as they're on their way out. Now remember, God has caused the Passover to happen, and now they're going to march out as vic victors after the Passover. They didn't cause the Passover. It passed over them and, and killed the firstborn of Egypt. But here's what they were told. Exodus 12, starting at verse 21. Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now, when we get up to verse 28, after a little bit more instruction, we see, So the people bowed their heads and worshipped, and the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They received instruction. God, as sovereign, as Lord of hosts, gave instruction to his army. Don't leave your house. That's a hard way to win a war. Don't leave your house. Do these things, prepare your door, kill the Passover lamb, and stay inside. That was their instruction, so they went, and so they did. And then verses 35 and 36, Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> How did they win that battle? They obeyed the Lord. That's what it took. And that was their first bout of training. That was their first round of training as God's soldiers. Want to see the second round? Let's go to Exodus 14. 
Exodus 14, verses 1 through 4. We read two of the verses already, but I want you to see the second battle now. The first battle was getting out of Egypt. Now, they actually have to cross the Red Sea to get completely out of Egypt's territory. Pharaoh's on their tail, and here's what we're told. Exodus 14, beginning verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pihahiroth, between Megdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. With a high hand is literally what it says in the, in the Hebrew. That's what you do when you're in victory. Yeah! They're going out doing this as they're marching out of Egypt. Yet Pharaoh is now going to be hardened and coming after them. Verses 13 and 14 we read where Moses tells them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so they were told the Lord would fight for them and they would hold their peace. And then look at verses 30 and 31. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians... And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. They're being trained for the wars they're going to have to fight when they get to the promised land. By this, by learning to obey God at his word in what looked like dire situations. Trusting in God and watching him defeat Pharaoh was part of their training. That was their soldiers' training. They weren't learning how to swing a sword. They were learning how to obey the Lord, the Lord of hosts. I want to suggest to you that what Paul says in Romans 15, 4, that those things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope, that means that's our training as well. As we're watching God protect His people under the hand of Pharaoh, as we're watching God plunder the Egyptians through the obedience of his people as they're marching out with a high hand, as we're watching God defeat Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea, that's learning, that's teaching for us. That's part of our training as the soldiers that God would call us to be. We saw the, the basis, the foundation for his training of his soldiers. I want to suggest to you that David had seen that too. He knew these stories of his people. David understood that as he went out on that battlefield with Goliath that he's got this history of God's provision that's going out with him. This was not just this little boy and a giant. This was a giant that's blaspheming God, and this is God's battle. And David had seen what happened to the giant Pharaoh with this ragtag bunch of slaves. David had already seen what God had done in his life as he defeated the lion and the bear when he was shepherding his, his own sheep. He knew that God was going to deliver. The truth is, as we look at this, what we, what we learn together with them, as the verse says that they were saved that day, Exodus 14, 30, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, they were saved by God's grace. God determined to do this because He chose to, based on their obedient faith. That's exactly what we're told that brings our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We're saved by His grace, through our faith. This is one of those examples of that. I want to suggest to you that Hezekiah, spreading that letter out in faith before the Lord, he was saved by God's grace. He asked the Lord, please save us. 
you're the Lord of hosts, you can do this. God chose to, based on Hezekiah's obedient faith in his grace. The truth is, as we look at this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's exactly why in Ephesians 6 we're told that we need to put on the armor of God. This is not a regular battle. This is not out in that street with the machine gun and the dog laying there. This is much, much worse. You think that looked bad. The spiritual battle is much worse. As God's army, the truth is that the battle is spiritual. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5 says, Though we walk in the flesh, it might look like we're on that street with the machine gun, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. This is a spiritual battle that's going on. It's interesting how God demonstrates that concept several times in the Old Testament. There's many more than than what I'll show you here. But from the very beginning, when he first tells them in Deuteronomy 20, now they've marched through the wilderness, they've seen the salvation of the Lord a couple of times at this point, but he begins to tell them about what it's going to be like when they go into war in the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 20, look at verses 1 through 9. This is shocking. When you think about he's saying, now soldiers, I want you to be prepared, and here's what you do. (laughs) When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You notice that point of reference? That's their founding moment. That's the time they're recognizing what God's able to do. He keeps calling them to look back to what he did for them as he brought them out of Egypt. The Lord who brought you from Egypt is going to be with you. So it shall be when you're on the verge of battle that the priests shall approach and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid and do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Okay, anybody got a new home? Go go back home. (laughs) All right. What man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. (laughs) You're going to lose a lot of soldiers that way. What man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man marry her. (laughs) Are you engaged? Oh, well, go back home. What are you doing out here? (laughs) He's paring down the numbers of his soldiers as they're going into battle. Oh, what are you doing here, Johnson? You need to go back home. Didn't you just plant a vineyard? Go eat from your vineyard. We got this. The Lord's going to win this battle. We don't need you. What an amazing concept. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be, when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. Whoever's left... Start organize them together as we'll, we'll go in under their captainship. What? <laughs> See something similar with Gideon in Judges chapter 7. You've got way too many people. They'll think they won the battle, Gideon. Let's start getting rid of some of these people. Let them go lap in the stream. Whenever there's some number left over and end up being 300, I'll win the battle with these 300. You don't need those others. Against 15,000 other troops. God was paring down the numbers, showing 
the battle isn't won by sword and spear. He allowed Israel to be defeated. They went to spy out the promised land in Numbers 13. They got a bad report. And God said, okay, if you don't want to go take the land, then don't go take the land. And in Numbers 14, I want you to look at this text with me here, verses 39 to 45, they decide they're going to go in anyway. All right, well, we made a mistake. We really should have listened to God the first time. Let's go in. Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly, that is, that they're not going to be able to take the land. They rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. They're confessing it. Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. God allowed them to be defeated when they were more numerous than the ones they were going up against. Allowed them to be defeated because they were unwilling to listen to him. We see similar things in uh, Joshua. And we already read the text in Jeremiah 21 when they said, we need to pray to God, maybe he'll turn Nebuchadnezzar away. And God said, no, I'm bringing all your weapons to turn against you. I've delivered this city into his hand. He made them surrender if they wanted to survive. But what he's showing is the battle's not to the one who's the strongest. The battle's not to the one who has the best weapons. The battle is the Lord's. Their victory does not depend on numbers, but it depended on their spiritual state and on their obedience to him. David understood that as he walked out on that field that day in our text that we read early on. The Lord of hosts will deliver you into my hand. You're defying the, the armies of God. This is not a battle of sword and spear. This is a spiritual battle. And so in Romans 9, verses 15 through 18, in a similar context to what we saw that citation from, in the same context where we saw that citation from, uh, from Isaiah earlier, here's what uh, uh, Paul says. That God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. Now in this general context, really from chapter 8 and 9 together, the one that God determines to have mercy on is the one who obeys his word. That's the one that's going to be victorious with the Lord. And that's the point that's being made here. Pharaoh was, defi was defying God. And therefore, God had risen him up, but God could also put him down, which is what he did. So the battle is spiritual. In fact, what we saw in our reading there in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 6 is that it's a judgment on all those who lift themselves up against God. It's a judgment on God's enemies. That's not a new concept either, though. In Genesis 15, when Abraham is concerned that he has no son to be the heir of all these things that God has promised, God tells him something interesting about the nations that he's going to inherit the land of. Genesis 15, starting at verse 14, first speaking of Egypt. The nation whom they serve, Egypt, I will judge. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he took them out of Egypt, judging Egypt. And then he sent them into the land of the Amorites, the Canaanites at that point, whose iniquity at that point 
was complete. He was going to send them in after four generations to judge them for all the evil they had been doing. So it's a judgment. And so in Exodus 5, you remember Pharaoh's famous statement, who is God? Who is God that I should listen to him? Well, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 9, God says, I'm going to send these next plagues right to Pharaoh's heart. He's going to know who God is. And then he had already said in Exodus 14, I'm going to overthrow him so that the Egyptians will know that I am God, that I am the Lord. It's a judging of Egypt. It's a judging of the Canaanites. In Leviticus 18, when God is giving some of his laws, he says they're not going to do as the Canaanites have done because God is removing the Canaanites. He's judging them. Look at Leviticus 18, verses 24 and 25. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Why does Israel get the land of Canaan? Because God is judging the land of Canaan using Israel. And he's casting out those inhabitants. He's casting out the Canaanites. And then again, we've seen that judging of Israel itself in Jeremiah 21, where he says, you surrender. There's a, a sort of a funny scene in 2 Chronicles 18, when Ahab and Jehoshaphat want to go up to battle and they call on Micaiah. And he says, oh yeah, go up. Because he knew he wanted Ahab to die. <laughs> Going into battle, Ahab, oh, you'll be fine. But he knows Ahab's going to die. And Ahab says, I don't trust you. <laughs> Swear to me that you're telling me only what God says. And then he says, you're not going to do well if you go up in this battle. You will not return. <laughs> and he doesn't. So God is judging his enemies, even if his enemies turn out to be his own people at some point. The point behind all of this is that Israel would learn to trust God in certain things. They would learn to trust his justice. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. They'll learn to trust that that's true. God will avenge uh, Israel and he will, he will uh, bring vengeance on his enemies. He'll learn to trust his providence. You remember the famous uh, uh, speech of God with Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong and courageous. Am I not with you? I will keep you. No one can stand against you if you will but obey me and keep my words. And then in that Second Chronicles uh, text, as Ahab goes out, a random archer shoots an arrow into the air that goes right up under the joists of the armor that Ahab's wearing. God's word will come to pass, even if it takes some seemingly random event. I love the fact that that's in there, a certain random archer. There's nothing random about that. This is what God had prophesied. Israel is learning to trust in God, in his justice, in his providence, and in his word. That's their training as soldiers. That's our training as God's soldiers. And so, that brings us to where we stand, and where we're going to be standing, God willing, in the, my next lesson in two weeks as we look at this armor of God. But 1 John chapter 5, John speaking here to Christians. He's telling them that the one who overcomes the world is the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the victory in verse 4 that has overcome the world our faith. Israel could not beat the Canaanites without God. There were a lot of different Canaanite tribes. They were a strong and a fierce people. They were giants in the land. You remember as they went up in Numbers 13, that's the report. It's a beautiful land, but they've got fortified cities, great big walls, and there's giants. We look like grasshoppers in front of them. We can't do this. They knew they couldn't. Chapter 14, when they tried, Without the Lord, the ark didn't go, Moses didn't go, Moses said, the Lord's not going with you. They were routed. There was no chance without the Lord. 
In Judges chapter 6, you've got Gideon hiding from the Midianites. He's threshing the wheat in the wine press. It's not time for grapes right now, so no one expects anybody to be threshing wheat in there. He's hiding it from the Midianites. And God comes and says, oh, you valiant man, you're going to save Israel. He says, not me. I'm, I'm scared. I'm hiding out in the, in the wine vat. But it's God who's going to send him up. He's afraid because he knows by himself and coming from this small family that he comes from, that he can't save Israel. And he's right. Without God, he cannot. And because Israel didn't trust God, in Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, they didn't trust God. They didn't cast out the Canaanites as they were supposed to. God allowed the Canaanites then to become thorns in their side. And they had problems with them all through their history because they didn't run them out because they didn't trust God. Well, the truth is, we're engaged in battle. The enemy has engaged us and the enemy is Satan. And we cannot beat him without God. In Ephesians chapter 6, that's the point that Paul is making here. Starting at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual armies of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You're in battle, Paul says. You better be preparing yourselves, but it's the armor of God you need. Look at what Satan is full of. 2 Corinthians 2.11, we're not unaware of his devices. Boy, he's got some crafty ways about him. He can transform himself even... To an angel of light, 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. He's got a lot of things he can do to fool you. You'd better be preparing yourself in God. Peter calls him a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. God doesn't picture Satan as some weakling. Sometimes Christians have this idea, certainly uh, evangelicals have this idea that, well, the devil can't touch me. <laughs> yeah, I've already committed my life to Christ. The devil can't touch me. Well, have you committed your life to Christ would be the first question. Have you truly committed your life to Christ? Are you obeying him? Now, if you're obeying him and you're obeying the Lord, then he's going to fight your battle for you, your spiritual battle. He tells you to stand and resist the devil and he'll flee from you. But you resist him strong in the armor that God has given you. In Revelation chapter 12, we see Satan unmasked. He's this great dragon, fiery, red, full of heads, full of horns, full of power. And he will devour the unwary. (laughs) But if you're on the side of the Lamb, the lamb will open his mouth and his sword will cut him down as the Lord fights for you. But we can't beat Satan without God. We can't even hope to try. The truth is, as we've seen in Israel, our victory is only by grace and obedient faith. God desires to put down every enemy that, that comes up against him. And if we're on his side, we'll be with him as he puts down the enemy. But we've got to first recognize I'm at war. This is not just some walk in the park. This is not just some come in and sit on a bench once in a while and hope I've done enough to please God and maybe get a little bit of of a picker-upper. I am at war. When I'm in this building, I'm at war. But even when I'm by myself, perhaps then I'm the most vulnerable in this war. What am I doing about it? Am I trusting the battle to the Lord You recently finished the book of Romans, but I just love what Paul says here. In Romans 16 and verse 19, he's talking about Christians, 
obedient Christians, ones who are training themselves and using the Lord's armor, the ones who have got this battle because it's the Lord's, they've got this battle in hand. They're engaged in the right way. He says, your obedience has become known to all. Therefore, I'm glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Would you have Satan crushed under your feet? You can only do that in obedience to God. It's God who is fighting the battle. It's not you. You can't crush Satan under your feet, but the Lord can. Are you trusting the battle to the Lord? Are you trying to engage the enemy in some carnal means? Sometimes we try that. Oh, I can beat Satan. It's not that hard. And we start trying to set up for ourselves ways that we're going to beat Satan. It's not going to work. We've got to commit ourselves into the hand of the one who defeated him soundly by allowing himself to be put to death on the cross. But innocent in death, he resurrected and has taken the power and the command, the keys of Hades and of hell. And he's the one who can guide us to the other side. He's the one who died to pay the price for our sins. And that's the only hope we have. Because if we die in our sins, Satan has won. He's trying his best to kill us. You're at war. Think about that street scene. That's what it looks like spiritually around you all the time. Don't be like the dog, desensitized and just lying there. Take the battle head on. But do it in the full armor of God. God willing, in a couple of weeks, we'll look at what that looks like. But the training begins now. Before we even look at that, obey the Lord in all you do, and he will see you through. If you're not a Christian, you don't even know where to start doing that. We'd love to help you today. If you're willing to come forward and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be repentant of your sins and have them washed away in baptism, you can start preparing yourself with that, with that battle armor now. The battle is coming to you, whether you're Christian or not. You just don't have a hope of winning if you're not with Christ. If you are a Christian, but you've been trying to engage the enemy in ways that are just not working, if you haven't been faithfully obeying the Lord, if you need the help of these fellow soldiers around you to help lift you up and encourage you to the battle, won't you come forward and make your need known while we stand and sing this song?